God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, oh, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will know the difference between good and evil. You'll be like God. You will know the difference between good and evil. I'm going to preach this morning from the title, Be Careful What You Ask For. Be careful what you ask for. My friends, wisdom and her pursuit have been honored through the ages. The ancient Egyptians worshipped Maat, the goddess of truth, justice, and balance. The Greeks had Sophia, wisdom's personification and the beginning of all knowledge. Aristotelian ethics professes that phronesis, practical wisdom, is all of the virtues personified. And among the Swahili in East Africa, wisdom is wealth. It's the sort of wealth that can never be consumed, it can only be shared. As the literature of the Hebrew Bible encourages us at one point, wisdom is better than gold and understanding should be chosen over silver. Think about with me the life of one of the Bible's most memorable characters, for instance. King Solomon. Communities revere King Solomon as a moral paragon of wisdom and virtue. King Solomon reigned in the early 10th century before Christ and legend has it that Solomon was offered a blank check by God. When God said Solomon asked for whatever you will, Solomon he didn't ask for a long life. Solomon didn't ask for fortune, nor did Solomon ask for fame, but rather in realizing the limitations of his cognitive capacity and realizing the deficiencies of his own discernment, Solomon said, Lord, give me an understanding heart so that I might know the difference between good and evil. Because the legend says God was pleased with Solomon's seemingly humble request, the legend contends that God gave him what he asked for and a whole lot more. Thus, Solomon becomes the model of wise counsel. He becomes the epitome of honorably earned wealth. Solomon becomes the archetype of responsible power. Now it's easy to see, my friends, why the ancients have hoisted the pursuit of wisdom as the height of noble leadership in the form of King Solomon. For then, like now, so many linked wealth with power. 
So many then, like now, linked money with might and might with right. The virtues of honesty, sincerity, and decency are all too easily trumped by power, privilege, and long purse strings. The character attributes of intellect, integrity, and curiosity are trumped by mendacity, deceit, and entitled ignorance. For then, like now, Many felt more comfortable with autocrats than intellectuals. Then, like now, many preferred the certainty of tyrants over the ethical questions of philosophers. And then, like now, many would rather defer to a rich buffoon than a poor person of virtue. Too many confuse aggressiveness for intellect as if those of us who walk and talk the loudest and the longest really actually have something to say. And too many confuse hubris for high-mindedness as if we make the world a better place just by waking up in the morning. So this could be why the ancient sages gave us this particular legend of Solomon's ascendancy to the throne. For Solomon was meant to serve as a reminder that true wealth is a moral concept, not a material possession. Wealth flows from wisdom, which is one's capacity to live a thoughtful life of love and virtue. And virtue entails a generosity of spirit located between unhealthy extremes. Wisdom, for instance. Wisdom is learning how to live between the extremes of blind faith and dogmatic certainty for those are just two sides of the same ideological coin. Oh, wisdom. Wisdom is learning how to live between the debilitating fear and impulsive rashness. For courage, my friends, is not just the rejection of cowardice. It involves being caring and contemplative while you're making decisions. Wisdom is not about being the smartest person in the room. But wisdom is about being the most effective person in the room to improve the overall quality of everybody in the room. It's about skill. Wisdom is about creativity. Wisdom, it's about sound judgment. Wisdom is not just about having a knowing information. It's about having the appropriate moral dispositions to develop insight, foresight, and application. In the words of Zora Neale Hurston, wisdom is learning how to hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. This is why. Some of the ancient writers depicted the legend of Solomon in this way, for Solomon's life was intended as an ethical archetype. He was presented as a moral guide for us. But I'm here to tell somebody this morning during the season of Lent that the humble pursuit of wisdom is not the only lesson we can learn from the ancients. For yes, 
the ancients, particularly the ancient class of sages that would write and document these myths. Yes, they offered us this story, this tradition that exalts Solomon as the epitome of wise leadership. But I also know that wisdom among the Hebrew sages was also a contested category. For there was a class of sages in ancient Israel who were skeptical of the pursuit of wisdom. For many saw the pursuit of wisdom as a dangerous underside to reality. For wisdom in human possession, the same gift of discernment can just as easily lead the best of us on a path toward destruction. In other words, the very moment that you and I become aware of our wisdom and are conscious of our humility is the very moment that the greatest of all temptations will set in. That temptation called vanity. Vanity can infect us all like a spiritual virus. So though the pursuit of wisdom is recommended by some ancient sages, it was denounced by other ancient sages. And those ancient sages who denounced wisdom's pursuit were clearly the ones who penned this particular version of the, creative, of the creation narrative that we read this morning for your hearing. Oh, we all know the story. We all know the story how, uh, how, how is the serpent depicted? The serpent in this story is depicted as wise and crafty. Oh, and what does he do? He then promises Adam and Eve that they will know the difference between good and evil. As a matter of fact, the writer of this text has the serpent use the exact same language of Solomon's humble request. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people. Why? So I'll be able to discern between good and evil. So some sages were trying to provide another moral lesson about the pursuit of wisdom. While it could be an example of humble leadership, it also might be an example of vain temptation. For the very moment that we think that it's finite, limited creatures, that we have the right answers to life's confounding questions, our garments of humility immediately become the armor of hubris. We become like that kid that kid who wears a t-shirt that declares, I am so humble. <laughs> Adam and Eve, they fall prey to their own vain desires. Adam and Eve, they fell victim to the scam that any one of us can really know the difference between good and evil. Uh, this is why the great neo-Orthodox theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, he described this as the part of the nature of humanity. Niebuhr says that the only thing in which we can be certain in this life is our uncertainty. The only doctrine of the church that can be empirically verified is the human penchant for sin. So it's at these moments when we are most sure and most confident that we must learn to temper what many might call our own entitled ignorance. Consider this. 
Consider how many wars are raging today. Wars fought by those who believe that they alone know the difference between good and evil. Consider the nation of obstructionist politics in this country, Brother Eric. Partisanships that's based on the view that our side is absolutely right, for we alone know the difference between good and evil. Or consider religious violence. Religious violence sparked by devotion to an angry and absolutist God. For too many of us have been quick to claim God on our side. Why? Because we alone know the difference between good and evil. The ancient sages, I believe they had a profound point. They had a profound point that any claims to rightness or ethical absolutes should be treated with suspicion. Oh, my friends, this is not, let me be clear, this is not about a crass moral relativism here. But it is about having an intellectual openness and epistemic humility. For ego will tempt us to forsake what we want most, and that is truth and justice for what we want now, and that is winning the day. And this is the kind of intellectual and moral myopia that causes too many of us to claim fruit of knowledge that only belongs to Almighty God. We become like Adam and Eve. We accept the serpent's offer. We think that we can know the difference between good and evil, yet we do not realize that we might just end up in our absolutism and in our certainty, we just might end up being the devil's advocate. Some of you may remember a movie of this title. Do you remember that, Teresa? The Devil's Advocate. I'm sorry, we're just having a conversation. It was a movie, The Devil's Advocate, it was about 20 years ago. The Devil's Advocate starred Keanu Reeves. He was playing a young, gifted, talented lawyer from Gainesville, Florida. In fact, matter of fact, he had never lost a case. This is why a high-powered attorney from New York shows up at his door. A high-powered attorney by the name of John Milton. John Milton was played by Al Pacino. And Milton brings this young lawyer to New York. He gives him a beautiful apartment. He has him defend court cases that are indefensible. Yet the entire time he keeps playing to the young lawyer's ego. Every time he gets his back against the wall and he's probably going to have to lose a case, he says to him, it's okay, kid. I guess we all have to lose sometime." And this only catalyzes the lawyer to further compromise his own moral convictions. For winning is his only moral standard, dictating and deciding himself the difference between good and evil. And by the end of the film, the young lawyer has lost his career. He's lost his wife to suicide. And most, more importantly, he's lost his soul to John Milton who he has come to discover is actually Satan. 
And in this powerful climactic scene, the young lawyer pulls a gun out on Milton, shoots it right through him. And he says, you did this to me. To which John Milton replies, you made choices. I only set the stage. My friends, I'm here to say this morning that this is the situation that you and I will repeatedly find ourselves in life. Satan, like in the gospel narrative that we read today, will offer us all of the wine, the wealth, and the ego-laden wisdom that this world can provide. And like John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, life will tell us that it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. But I'm here to encourage us. Let's use this season of Lent as a reminder that there are just some things in life that we can't have. There are some things in life that we can never know. And most importantly, there are some things in life that we should never seek for we can never sit in the chair of Almighty God. And this is why we should be careful what we ask for. Let the church say amen.